But with the Lord's uh, help, trust, and his gracious spirit, we look to Acts 26, the chapter we read, and we take as the words of our text, verse 27 and 28. King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. And Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Friends, uh, this morning we looked at some of the previous chapter, chapter 25 of Acts, considering the way both Agrippa and Festus tried to keep themselves, if you like, at arm's length from the claims of the gospel, and especially from the central truth of the gospel, which is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. At that point, Festus had largely heard the claims of the apostle. He had sat in judgment over him, but Agrippa had only had it relayed to him in selective portions through Festus. This evening, I want us to turn to this next chapter, chapter 26, and especially to the words at the end of the chapter where we read about King Agrippa. And I want us to examine closely how he reacts now that he himself has heard the gospel for himself. First of all, then, what King Agrippa believed. What King Agrippa believed. We need to remind ourselves, by the benefit of anyone who's not out this morning, who Agrippa was. He was, in fact, a Herod. And he, his great-grandfather was the Herod who tried to deceive the wise men and who slaughtered the infants under two years old. One of Herod the Great's many sons was a man called Aristobulus. And one of Aristobulus's sons was Agrippa I, not this one. That was the one who killed James and who tried to kill Peter and who was eaten of worms. At his demise, his son, Agrippa II, inherited the titles belonging to Aristobulus, Aristobulus' son, Agrippa I. And this Agrippa here, then, in this portion, is actually Agrippa II, probably still quite a young man. And no doubt, the manner of his father's death, having been eaten of worms, must have made some sort of an impact, you'd think, upon him. The Herods were not actually Jews at all, although they carefully married into some Jewish well-known families and aristocracy. They were known to be Idumeans or Edomites. And Bernice, who is here mentioned in this chapter, is not actually Agrippa's wife at all, but rather his sister. That's just a bit of the background of the man. But what was it that this man then believed? And Paul helps us here. We are told in verse 27 that he believed the prophets. That is the prophets of the Old Testament. He believed the Old Testament. Why does Paul ask him that? What's Paul's point? Why is it important? The apostle has been defending the faith of Christ, in Christ. He has been proving by his preaching that what Jesus did and what Jesus said, his suffering and his death, was in fact the fulfillment of the prophecies. It wasn't just that it happened. It happened according to the predictions of the prophecies. 
the prophecies had said that God would do these things. And Agrippa believed the prophets. Now, that God should raise the dead was no incredible thing to a man who believed in God. We have that. I think it's in uh, verse 8. Why should we thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? If you believe in a God at all, then you should be able to believe that a God would raise the dead. But Paul is more specific than the mere marvel of that fact at all to someone who professes to believe in God. He says that Moses and the prophets said that Christ would come, verse 22, and that he would suffer, verse 23, and that he would rise again from the dead, and that he would show light to the Gentiles. You see what Paul is doing? Saying, you believe the prophets. Here's what the prophets say said would happen, and I am now telling you, all these things have been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot well say that you believe what the prophets say, that Christ must come and suffer and die and rise, and then when someone comes along who claims to be Christ, and he is sent of God, and he suffers, and he dies, and he rises again, you cannot then simply act as if it's all, all too fantastical to accept. You can't just turn around and go, well, that's very unscientific. That's awfully unlikely. I remain skeptical about it all. And that's the point. Paul is bringing Agrippa to the only possible conclusion of his own belief in the prophets. Either Agrippa must now accept Christ and the faith of Christ, or else he must abandon his previously existing belief in the prophets. If you believe the prophets, you believe Christ. If you disbelieve Christ, you abandon your belief in the prophets. So perfectly does the Lord Jesus Christ fulfill the promises made in the Old Testament. In other words, Agrippa, you must have all or nothing. Uh, before we rush on with this, I want us to pause for a moment and try to apply it. Paul is showing that Agrippa is willing to agree to truth. He is willing to say the writings of Moses are true. The writings of the prophets, I accept. God's uh, messengers, these prophets were God's messengers sent by the Lord. But when it comes to applying that truth, so that Agrippa is put in the position of a personal commitment being demanded of him to the fulfillment of these promises, that is to the Lord Jesus Christ, then Agrippa seems reluctant to go as far as the obvious conclusion. And friend, is there not someone tonight under these, in the sound of the gospel, in the same position? Someone who says, oh, I believe in the truth of the prophets. I believe in the truth of the Bible, but he was not willing to follow through the implications of it. Well, by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ here tonight, you are adjured this evening to believe in Christ as the one who fulfills all the truths and promises of Scripture. 
Do you believe? Do you really believe the Bible or do you not? Do you believe in God or do you not? Do you believe in Jesus or do you not? Do you believe in the resurrection or do you not? Where are you in terms of your own belief? You cannot have some of the things of the Bible, but sort of pull up the drawbridge of your own personal faith at other parts of it. You cannot have half a Bible. You cannot accept the promises about a savior and then refuse the savior himself who fulfills the promises. What's the point in believing that these promises are true if when the promises are fulfilled, you reject the fulfillment? It makes no sense. You cannot take on board the reality of God whilst at the same time rejecting his great plan to save sinners. You cannot either embrace on the one hand the moral law of Scripture and the ethics of Scripture without realizing that they condemn you and show that you need the mercy of God. And then when God provides his son as the evidence and the fulfillment of his love and compassion to the lost, what think ye of Christ? Believest thou? Believest thou the prophets? That's a question Paul put. How would you answer that evening, uh, that question this evening? Believest thou? Well, what Agrippa believed is our first point. Secondly, why King Agrippa confessed? Why Agrippa confessed? First of all, what he believed. Secondly, why he confessed. To his credit, Agrippa did respond to Paul. He didn't bluster. He didn't huff and puff his way around it with all the pomp of his status. Instead, he made what was a remarkable confession for a man who'd walked in there on the high tales of ceremony. His confession is so well known today. Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. That's what he confessed. Why did he confess that? And what did he mean? Almost persuaded. Some suggest he's mocking Paul. Are you trying to persuade me to be a Christian? I don't believe that's what he's doing at all. I believe he is honestly owning his own confusion and perhaps even a sense of his own impotence. How can he go forward? How can he move from being almost convinced to being altogether convinced? He is stuck on the borders of the kingdom and can't find his way in. Almost. He seems to be so close. So I believe that there was this in the heart of the king, King Agrippa, that he felt the force of Paul's argument. He understood it. It has to be all or nothing. Either I really do believe the prophets and Moses that Messiah must come and when he comes, he will suffer. And when he suffers, he will die. And after he dies, he will rise again. And if I really believe that, then there are no objections left to me embracing Christ. Or else I do not accept Christ, in which case I cannot pretend anymore to believe the Bible and its prophecies. And there are plenty of people who stand very close to Agrippa. 
And often, friends, and some of you here tonight, often it is those who have been brought up on the truths of the gospel who stand where Agrippa stood. Those of us who have always accepted, just implicitly, that the Bible is true, never even crossed our mind to doubt it, quite happy to embrace it. Didn't go along with those who denied the existence of God. Always seemed strange to us. Didn't they like the idea of, of uh, pushing God out of the beginning of the, all things and following an evolutionary line? No, we'll take creation. It makes more sense. And yet, we never went further than accepting the Bible as true. Agrippa, we can say, almost went a little bit further. All had related to him, what the Lord had said to him. It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I think Agrippa knew what it was to be kicking against the pricks at that very point. Agrippa's conscience was moved and stirred and pricked. And he wanted to know more. Perhaps they even feel their own guilt. Those who stand near Agrippa, whose conscience are likewise stirred, realizing something is amiss, realize that they have a need, knowing that the world at the end of the day is empty and cannot satisfy their hearts. Agrippa in his station could have his full, his fill of the world. And yet he is standing there before a prisoner and he's almost persuaded to join him. Are you saying tonight almost? I am almost persuaded to be a Christian. What is that? Why does Agrippa confess? That he's almost persuaded. Well, I think it is almost a plea. A plea to be almost persuaded. And I'm sure that maybe, I hope that you, dear needy sinner, you can recognize and agree with this. A confession that you are almost persuaded. Is it not also a plea that you would be fully persuaded? Is it not a plea in Agrippa for Paul? Paul, press a little more. Tell me a little more. Persuade me a little more. Paul, clinch the argument now. Make me believe. I'm close now. Won't you just get me over the line? I'm almost there. I'm so close. How many have sat under the gospel in our own context, perhaps in this very congregation for years, and you feel you're looking for the final piece of the jigsaw. You feel you're so close to getting it. And then, then I'll believe. Then I'll be a Christian. Then I'll be a real Christian. Then I'll escape this, this wretched, miserable, halfway house, this Bible-believing unbeliever. Is that what you are? That's what Agrippa was, a Bible-believing unbeliever. What am I? I am almost. That's what Agrippa was, almost. Almost persuaded, almost converted, almost repentant, almost forgiven, almost a Christian, almost but not. Because before every almost, you can just substitute the word not. Not repentant, not a believer, not a Christian, not persuaded. 
And it can be immensely frustrating to be in that condition and situation. It can, in fact, even be deeply painful and hurtful to be almost. It can feel as if others, not almost Christians, but those who are the altogether Christians, as if they're holding out on you, can feel even as if the minister is holding back on you. And if they would just tell you the last thing, if they would show you the last piece of the jigsaw, then you wouldn't need to be almost. But they don't want to give it to you. It seems no matter where you look, you can't find it. No matter who you ask, they won't tell you. You can't understand why they won't. You wonder if it's not just that they don't do it, that they won't, that they can't. Friend, would you side with Agrippa tonight? And say, I know what Agrippa was feeling like. I've been there. I've been here so often under the sound of the gospel to be an almost Christian. I've wanted to go further, but nobody would take me over the line. And I'm with Agrippa on this one. Would you raise a finger, perhaps even not just raise a hand to ask, but perhaps point a finger at some of the Lord's people. Why don't they just tell me? Why do they take me to the edge? I've been a Christian and they won't take me anymore. Why won't they get me closer? Why won't they bring me in? Why cannot they escort me right into the kingdom of Christ and make me a Christian? Why do they merely get me to the borders of grace again? That's Agrippa's confession. Look, I'm almost there, Paul. You've almost got me. I'm ready now for that last thing. Give it to me. I'm hungry for it. I'm almost, I'm willing to be persuaded. Paul, I'm right here. I could be your prize convert. Do something about it. I think that's why Agrippa confessed. Almost that persuades me to be a Christian. Thirdly, when Agrippa was challenged, verse 29 and Paul said, I would to God that not only thou, but also all that hear me this day were both almost and altogether such as I am, except these bonds. You listen carefully to Paul's reply. Here's a man who's been listening all ears, his eyes wide, his heart seemingly open. A man, the last person you'd expect in his background to stand and say, almost I'm persuaded to be a Christian. And he gives this confession to the Apostle Paul. And Paul has got the floor to reply to him. And listen to what he says. And you say, where's the reply? Where's that last bit that he needs? What was that, Paul? Paul, why didn't you go over again? Why didn't you reinforce what you said? Why didn't you show him the very chapter and verse from the prophecy and show him the fulfillment? Why didn't you take him over the line? Why didn't you emphasize the claims of Christ? Why didn't you present the evidence for the resurrection? Why didn't you give again the reason why you did die for sinners? And Paul does none of these things. Instead, he simply affirms his sincere desire to see Agrippa and Festus and Bernus and everyone else in that court listening to their discussion his desire to see them all as saved as himself, 
as forgiven as himself, as sure of Christ as himself, as convinced of the claims of the gospel as himself, as all the way persuaded as the apostle, just as committed to the cause as the apostle. That's what he wanted. And he wished that everyone could encounter the risen Jesus the way he did on the road to Damascus. That everyone could enjoy the peace that passed understanding that he enjoyed. That everyone could know the pardon that his heart had been flooded with. That everyone could say, he loved me and gave himself for me. I know the love of Christ. Everyone could be assured of heaven, knowing that the hour of departure is coming when he said Everyone could serve Christ as he served Christ. Oh, he wished that they could be all together as he is, not just almost as he is. The only thing he didn't want for them was the chains. And here he is on trial in such a situation, and he doesn't even ask for his chains to be removed. He just says, I don't want them for you. He simply doesn't desire the chains, but everything else. And there's a real challenge in these words. So he said, our point is when Agrippa was challenged. Because Paul is saying to him this, I assure you with all of my heart that I am holding nothing back from you. I assure you that I want you to have it all. I want you to have all the grace and the love and the mercy that I have found in Christ. And the reason that Paul doesn't add anything else to try and persuade Agrippa is simply because there is nothing left to add. It's as if he says to Agrippa, look, I promise you, I long for you to be converted, but I am not holding anything back from you. I've not missed out the last piece of the jigsaw. For you, I am not withholding some key truth. I am what I am. I'm changed. I'm saved. I'm a new man. And I want you to be this new man too. So Paul is saying here, really, Agrippa, there is nothing else. There is nothing that I have that I haven't mentioned to you. There is no more claims. There's no more truth. There's no more evidence. Apart from what the prophet said would happen. About crisis fulfilled. You have to deal with what you have. And no matter what desire is in your heart. To have a little bit more. You have to deal with what you have. Oh, friend Agrippa, he says, please not think for one moment. Because I'm not giving you anything more. That implies that somehow I'm holding out on you. That somehow I don't want you to be a real Christian. Nothing could be further from the truth. I would to God that you were saved. But I don't want you to demand or expect Anything more than the gospel. I don't want you to demand or expect anything over and above the scriptures and the Old Testament prophecies 
and the records of their fulfillment in the new. That is proof enough. That is evidence enough. That is all the persuasion that is required. That is all the convincing that is offered. Do not tempt God, friends. Do not say, oh God, what you offer me is insufficient for me. It might have persuaded others, but I require more. If you're going to win me, an important Agrippa-like character, you're going to have to do better. You're going to have to perform a special miracle, or you're going to have to at least present some more strong evidence on persuasive proof. No. Here is the challenge. You have been given it all in the gospel. And yet you are not satisfied. If God himself has given the whole of the gospel to you. And you are not satisfied. Do you think the problem is with the gospel? Or do you think the problem is with yourself? For those who might have a mathematical bent of mind, consider it like this. You've been given the proof of an equation by a teacher up on the board. You've been shown all the parts and how it all fits together. And they've even gone over multiple examples to prove that this equation can be used in all sorts of ways. And it always works. And the answer always pops out at the end. And you can check it, work the steps backwards. And it's true. You can consistently apply it in the field of mathematics. And then you would say to your teacher, oh, but I want more proof. What is more proof than proof? What is more evidence than fact? What's the problem in that case? It's not a lack of evidence. The problem becomes a problem of the heart. What you need under the gospel, friend, is not more evidence. You have it all. What you need is to believe the evidence you have. Remember the account that the Lord gives of the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus being the poor beggar. And they both die. The rich man is in torments. And at one point in the account, the Lord says that the rich man asked for someone to rise from the dead in order to warn his brothers about this terrible place. And in Luke 16, 31, it says, and he, that's Abraham, who he's talking with in the parable, and he said unto him, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. What was the issue? Not lack of proof. That Moses and the prophets. And adding proof, rising someone, rising from the dead, wouldn't change it. Because the problem was a problem of an unbelieving heart. It was a lack of faith. The problem you see lies in the will of man. There's a stubbornness, an unbelievable thick-headedness in the fallen will of man, which despite the abundance of clarity and truth and evidence and claims and persuasion that it is presented with, 
refuses to be persuaded. Despite the abundance of all that there is in the gospel, despite the evidence of the effectiveness of the gospel to change lives that you've all seen happen around you, you remain unconvinced because the problem is not with the gospel being presented to you, but in the will. That's what happened when Agrippa was challenged. Let's look at how it ended. Fourthly, how King Agrippa neglected. What does King Agrippa do after this? He's cried to Paul, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Paul replies, I would that not only thou, but all these people are almost and altogether as I am. He offers him no more evidence. What does Agrippa do next? Agrippa deflects and distracts. Agrippa gets up and walks away. The king rose up. Notice he does it. Not Festus, not Bernice. He comes first. The king rose up and the governor and Bernice. And they were sat with them. And when they were gone aside. Instead of asking himself, oh, what is wrong with my will that I refuse the clear claims and evidence? That even my own heart agrees with. What is wrong that I am almost persuaded and no more, despite the evidence that I should be persuaded. And I know I should be persuaded. Instead of asking himself these questions, Agrippa deflects. His conversation that he has immediately after that most um, telling spiritual high point of his life and existence to that moment. Instead of talking with uh, Festus about that, what does he do? He talks with Festus, not about his own soul, not about the truth of Paul's words, not about his own confusion or his own confession. It's about Paul's situation and Paul's trial and Paul's innocence. And that's not wrong as such. Paul was innocent. And it was worthy, I suppose, enough that as a judge, King Agrippa did not maliciously condemn Paul. But it wasn't the real issue. Paul hadn't made it the real issue. It wasn't the real issue. Paul did not complain about his chains. Paul did not ask to be let go. Paul preached the gospel to him. He was a prisoner for Christ and a prisoner of Christ. And he was happy to be so. He cared for Agrippa's soul. He pled for this man. He pled his heart out for him. Oh, I would to God, he says. Paul makes it an oath before God. I desire your salvation and nothing to harm you. And yet Agrippa neglected the challenge. And Agrippa changed the subject. And Agrippa got up and walked away from the question of his own guilt before God. And he changed it from his own guilt before God as a question. To a question of Paul's innocence before men. Oh friend, don't be tonight like Agrippa. Don't deflect. Don't neglect this claim. Don't ignore the evidence for the gospel that you know is true. You know it's true. And you know what it means if it's true for you. You know where you're going if you neglect the truth. And you know what is promised if you embrace the truth. Oh, friends, you know that the whole Bible is right you know that it means, therefore, that Jesus was, in fact, dying on Calvary 
for sinners because the Bible says so and the Bible is true. And if Jesus died in the place of sinners, that means that sinners deserve to die and deserve the punishment of hell. And it means, therefore, that if he died in the place of sinners, there must be mercy to be had in God through Jesus Christ, because that's why he came. And it means, therefore, that if God has judged sin in Christ for all who trust in him, there's got to be another point at which God judges sin in those who don't trust in him. There's got to be a judgment day, and it's coming. But that means, therefore, that there is something pressing. It means that life has a purpose. It means that your life has meaning. It means that my sins and your sins must be forgiven before they are condemned and us with them. And therefore, you must not do what Agrippa did and get up and walk away and change the subject. Don't do that tonight. Don't do it tomorrow. Don't change the subject. Don't put off the claims of Christ. Isaiah 55, seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord. And he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. God. God presented himself before Agrippa that day. And Agrippa kept him waiting. And Agrippa put him off. Agrippa chose to move past the moment. And we don't read that he ever had another chance. You have the opportunity again now, tonight, here. This is not your first time hearing these truths. Every week they are proclaimed to you from this pulpit. So I can say you have another real gospel opportunity tonight. But I cannot say that you'll ever get another one. Friend, you have all that you need to be persuaded. We have not kept anything back from you. What you need is the will to be, to want to be persuaded. And God alone can change your will. God alone can give you holy desires. Go to him with the brokenness of a wretched will that chooses sin and plead with him to help you and to change you and to make you not merely almost but altogether persuaded to be a Christian. Because that's where Paul left Agrippa and that's what Agrippa should have done. And it's what he didn't do. And it's probably, friends, why he's in hell tonight. And we don't want any of you who can identify closely with Agrippa here to be identifying one day closely beside Agrippa there. This is what you must do. This is what you must do. And how, friends, we long to hear that in Stornoway, there are those who are not only almost 
but altogether persuaded to be a Christian. May God bless his word. Let us pray. Oh, blessed God, as we come to thee, we thank that thy truth is unchangeable. We thank thee, O Lord, that thy word is sweet. It is for sinners. It is the sound of mercy itself put in words. It is a song of grace set to the music of the gospel. Oh, that our soul might sing. Oh, that our heart might dance. And oh, that we would be persuaded, almost know all together, to be a Christian. Take away our sins, but give us, oh Lord, give us, we pray, that new heart, that new desire, that new will to be a Christian. In Jesus' name, amen.